For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Hey everybody, Scott Risley here with Dwell Community Church. This is normally our Thursday night central teaching Bible study where we meet down on the campus of The Ohio State University. But it was five weeks ago today that Governor DeWine asked us to stop doing that and instead to disperse and to stay home and to try to stop the spread of this coronavirus. So instead, we're doing this tonight over the Internet, and I'm glad you could join us. You know, when we originally were meeting down on campus five weeks ago, we had just finished up our study in the book of James, and we were about to start a study of the life of Christ in the Gospel of Mark. And after teaching on a few different topics for the last couple of weeks, you know what we're going to do tonight? We're going to finally start our study on the Gospel of Mark, the dawn of the good news. Yes, we're going to spend some time focusing on Jesus Christ and his relevance for today. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that even though we can't be here in person, we can be here listening to your word, and we know your word will go out and accomplish its purpose. Lord, you say it does not return without accomplishing the purpose for which you sent it out, and I pray that's what would happen in our hearts here tonight as we hear your scriptures and as we gaze upon Jesus and this good news that rocked the world and has left it permanently changed, God. Amen. You know, I was really talking with a friend in my home church about this fantasy novel that quite a few people in our group are reading. And, you know, it's, it's long, and I read it, and it, it's a really good book. It's about 700 pages. But if you've ever read the fantasy genre, you know that they usually have a lot they have to set up. They've got their own maps of their own worlds. They have to tell you how does, you know, magic work in this world? How do the mo- what kind of monsters do they have in this world? And so, you know, it takes a while to lay everything out. And my friend was telling me, as we were talking, he said, this is the best book I've ever read in my life. And I said, whoa, hold on. You're telling me this is the best book you've ever read? Have you ever read J.R.R.R. Tolkien, the writer of The Lord of the Rings? Your guy took 700 pages to start telling a story. J.R. Tolkien took 1,000 pages to tell the entire story of The Lord of the Rings. That is genius. And in doing so... He essentially defined and revolutionized and created the modern fantasy genre. So sometimes the mark of good literature is not how long it is, but how short it is and how much it says in a short space and also the impact it has on other literature. And that's why I'm so excited to study the book of Mark tonight, because Mark is the shortest gospel by far, the shortest of four accounts of the good news of Jesus Christ. And I love the book of Mark. It's it's one of my favorite gospels. Definitely top four. And we're going to study Mark's gospel. What I I like about Mark is a couple of things. It's brevity as well as its impact on shaping how the New Testament unfolded. First of all, Mark's brevity. What Luke covers in 182 verses, Mark covers in 13. You know, in the time that it takes Luke to cover 182 verses. Mark has already, in 13 verses, covered the thesis of his book, two Old Testament prophecies, the ministry of John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, and he's zooming back up to Galilee to pick out his disciples. 
Jesus. You know, Mark gets right to the story of Jesus. He tells us in actions. He describes the actions of Jesus much more than the teachings of Jesus. You know, Matthew's like, and Zerubbabel begat Abihud, and Abihud begat Eliakim. And Mark's like, come on, Matthew, we don't have time for this. You know, he says immediately, immediately, 41 times in his book, immediately Jesus did this, immediately did that. Move, move, move. And so we see quick from Mark in the life of Christ. We also see the impact that Mark had on the other gospel writers. You know, what scholars are agreed on is that Mark was written first of the four gospels and that he was a source for Matthew and Luke. And you know, if you can get New Testament scholars to agree on something, it must be right. It must be pretty obvious. How do we know Mark came first and was a source for Matthew and Luke? Well, it's because you see so much of Mark showing up in the other gospels. 97% of Mark has a parallel in Matthew. And only a little bit less than that in Luke, 88%. In fact, 40% of Mark is just copied over, basically word for word into Matthew. And again, Luke is just behind him. And so these guys were clearly using Mark as one of their main sources. And so the way that the story of Christ was laid out in Mark both drew on existing written materials and other eyewitness testimonies and also shaped the way Matthew and Luke told their particular stories for their particular audience. We also see the authority that stands behind the gospel of Mark. You might be wondering, you know, what, what authority does Mark have to write a gospel? Jesus said, you've got to be an apostle to write, apostol- to write scripture. You need apostolic authority. So on what authority does Mark stand? Well, Mark's got all the authority he could possibly want. The source behind his gospel is none other than the leader of the apostolic band, Simon Peter himself, the apostle Peter. And how do we know this? Well, there's many, many, many church fathers from very early times that tell us this. For example, Papias, who lived from 60 to 130 AD, said Mark, having become Peter's interpreter, wrote accurately all that he remembered. This was very common practice back in biblical times is for writers to sometimes hire a secretary who would commit their stuff to writing uh, for a lot of different reasons. But Mark Uh, performed that role for Peter in this case. Same thing with Irenaeus. He says, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, also committed to us in scripturated the things being preached by Peter. And so from here we can see from a very early time, from 180 AD, everybody knew that Mark wrote for Peter and that this was scripture. And so we have a very high authority, and you got to be careful where you get your view of Jesus from, because nowadays everybody's got their own view of Jesus. Everybody's claiming Jesus, but it's their own version of Jesus. It's like we've got the Jesus of the Month Club. For example, just a few months ago, you could turn on the Joe Rogan show, and you could see him espousing a particular view of Jesus. He was citing this so-called scholar, and here's what he has to say about Jesus in the New Testament. All of Christianity, Rogan says, was a massive misunderstanding. What it was originally about was a collection of stories that were about fertility rituals and psychedelic mushroom use. He goes on to quote a scholar who says Jesus never actually existed but was invented by early Christians under the influence of those drugs. Well, that's one theory, and it raises an important question. 
Where are you going to get your information about Jesus from? You're going to get it third, fourth, fifth hand. You're going to get it from a friend of a friend. You're going to get it from Joe Rogan himself. Or are you going to get it from people writing hundreds or thousands of years after the fact with this whole new version of Jesus that no one's ever espoused before? Why not go back to the horse's mouth and get it from the early eyewitnesses who were with him, who testified about him, and who went to their graves for the sake of their testimony. That's what we have in Mark, and that's what we get to study. I want you just to clear away all of the mental baggage and cultural baggage attached to Jesus and go right back to the bare, fast-paced, original gospel of Mark, telling the impressions and memories and teaching of Peter as evidenced by Jesus in this gospel. Another good reason to study Mark is because of its early date. Why, this is a great source. You know, we already said that Mark was a source for the Gospel of Luke. But if you look at Luke, you'll see that Luke was actually volume one of a two-book series. Luke wrote the book of Luke about Jesus, and then he wrote the book of Acts, which covers the 30 years after the death of Jesus. And the book of Acts, we know, ends abruptly in 62 AD. So the book of Acts probably finished around that time. But at the beginning of Acts, Luke says, I already wrote the book of Luke, and you, and you know all about that. Which means if Luke was done before he wrote the book of Acts, Luke was done in the late 50s, AD, 60 perhaps at the latest. But then if Mark is a source for Luke, that pushes Mark even further back into the mid-50s AD. And so this is a very early gospel. In fact, some people even dated earlier than that, into the early 50s or even, in some cases, back into the 40s. I don't, I don't necessarily put it that far back, but what we've got here is at the very least the earliest historical document of the New Testament. And possibly, quite possibly in some people's estimation, the earliest book written in our New Testaments. So Mark's gospel, it's early. It's authoritative. It's brief. It had a huge impact on the other gospel writers. So who was this Mark guy who worked with Peter to write this gospel? Well, Mark did have a little bit of firsthand knowledge about the life of Christ. In Mark 14, one of only four brief passages that have no parallel in the other gospels, Mark includes this strange little passage that takes place on the night of Jesus' arrest and the night before, you know, he would be crucified the next day. Mark writes in Mark 14, 50, all his disciples deserted him and ran away. There's this scene where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane outside of Jerusalem. And a mob shows up. And Judas kisses Jesus. And he betrays him to the soldiers. And they arrest Jesus. And all the guards, and, and they, they get Jesus and all the disciples flee. And then he says this. There was this young man following Jesus. And he was wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seize him, the young, naked, linen-clad man. But then he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped, naked. What is this about? Well, the consensus on this is that this was Mark. This was Mark sharing his own little piece of the story of Christ. Yes, Mark was with Jesus that night. Mark, we learn, 
uh, was from some money. His mom had a, a sizable house in Jerusalem. And on the final night of Jesus' life, he knew they were headed out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He apparently left in haste. He didn't have time to get dressed. He just grabbed an expensive, slippery linen sheet, threw it over his body, and ran along behind. Mark, who knows how much he saw, but he was at least there for the decisive moments. Judas kissing Jesus on the cheek to betray him. The soldiers moving in. Peter's heroic sword play. And the rebuke from Jesus. He saw all the disciples all flee from Jesus and that left Mark standing there, apparently with Jesus. The last follower left, maybe. And Mark had a choice to make. Would he stand with Jesus in this moment of need or would he run? Scripture says he made his choice. The guards saw him, they seized him and he slipped out of that slippery, expensive linen and ran naked through the Garden of Gethsemane to his freedom. The first and only, to my knowledge, streaker in the entire corpus of the scriptures. But Mark, he ran just like the rest of the disciples did. But he got another chance. Mark had a cousin named Barnabas who was also wealthy. He was from the island of Cyprus. He, Barnabas was a very powerful and generous man. He was a powerful leader in the early church, and he rose quickly to prominence. He was the son of encouragement. Barnabas played a huge role in the restoration of the Apostle Paul. He was a part of believing in Paul when no one else did and helping him become the man he was. He was an, an early leadership partner with Paul. And in Acts 13, we see that Mark was chosen as a helper, it says, to join Paul and Barnabas on the first ever missionary journey recorded in the history of Christianity. He was part of the dream team. He was part of everybody's favorite missionary band, Paul and Barnabas. And he gets out there and they make their first stop and they go to the island of Cyprus. And it says that for Mark, he couldn't take it. And in Acts 13, 13, John, Mark deserted them and returned to Jerusalem. He quit. They spent all this money to take him on this journey. They counted on him and he quit. Once again, he ran when it got hard. Imagine him going back to Jerusalem. Wow, you're back already? How was it? Well, I, I kind of quit early. He was a much younger man. Perhaps the impetu impetuousness of youth. But he's like Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Paul aren't real happy with me right now. This was a public failure. Everybody knew about this. But... He almost got another chance to serve God in Acts 15. They're headed out on the second missionary journey. And it says Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the man who believed in the underdog. And Paul said, no. Paul disagreed strongly because John Mark deserted us in Pamphylia. He hadn't continued in the work. I'm not counting on him again. I need reliable people. And this dude is done. They disagreed. The disagreement was so sharp. And the language is strong here. It was sharp disagreement. And they separated. And Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus. And so John, so John Mark was responsible for breaking up the band, breaking up the dream team. He was like the Yoko Ono of the 
early Christian church. Paul and Barnabas parted ways. And again, imagine them coming back to Cyprus. You back so soon? What happened? Well, Paul couldn't work with Mark anymore. And so we felt like it was better just to split up and go our separate ways. You know, Mark at that point must have felt like he blew his chance to be used by God. You know, here it's public, it's embarrassing. Paul is mad at him. Paul doesn't believe in him and everybody knows. And that is precisely when Mark was finally in the spot where God could use him. He'd run and failed enough. And now God had finally had him in a point where he was going to do what God had planned for him, for his contribution to the early church. You know, by the, you know, Barnabas worked with him. He got to be discipled by Peter. He began working on the book of Mark. By the time Paul was back from the third missionary journey, in the mid-50s, Mark's gospel was done. It was right on the heels of this failure, just a few years later. And then at the end of Paul's life, he says, Timothy, can you pick up Mark and bring him with you? He is useful to me for service. I really want Mark here by me in my moment of need. He's a good minister. And I bring this up because I know that a lot of us can relate to Mark. A lot of us can. A young guy who's failed, and then he failed again, and then he got another chance and failed again, and it was public, and he was humiliating. And some of us are maybe feeling like, like that, like, like we failed. We messed up. And I just want you to remember, Acts 15 wasn't the last chapter in Mark's life. No, if anything, that was the beginning of, of the greatest usefulness in Mark's life. All his failure was training to be used by God for great things. And as we read this book, I want you to remember that it was written by Peter and Mark, both guys who had plenty of experience with public failure. And I want us to have hope. Because one of the things they're going to emphasize proportionally more than any other gospel is that following Jesus, there's suffering involved. Following Jesus is hard. And you need to understand this, say Peter and Mark. Because they want you to be able to hang in there. And this brings us to Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Gospel or good news. Yeah, this is the beginning. Genesis 1, the beginning of our Bibles, begins with the beginning of creation. And the rest of the Old Testament then unfolds the subsequent chapters in God's plan of salvation. You know, each chapter building on the previous, pre building on the previous. But then we get to the end of the Old Testament, the final writing prophet, Malachi. The final prophet. And he ends on a cliffhanger. God says, Behold, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, I'm going to send you Elijah. And then we get radio silence for 400 years. You know, it's like you get to the end of the, the, the show you're watching on Netflix, and you're like in binge-watching mode, and you expect that next episode thing to come up because you want to watch the next one, and it doesn't pop up, and it's still not popped up, and they haven't released a new series. And then 400 years goes by, and they still have not released the next season. That's what it was like. They kept waiting and waiting and waiting. God, when it, what comes next? When is it next? 
And so Mark begins also at the beginning. Because what he's unfolding here is not just another chapter in the Old Testament. This is something entirely new. This is the dawn of the good news, the, the launch party, the, the pilot. This, this is the beginning of it all. The beginning of the gospel or the good news. What is the gospel? It's a term that Christians throw around. It originally comes from the old English Godspell, which means glad tidings or good news. But for Greeks, the word was euangelion. And this was a term that was mainly reserved for emperor worship, for the imperial cult. This was a technical term that the early Christians adopted as they translated the Aramaic of the teaching of Jesus into the Greek of the common tongue. And we can see this term, euangelion, the gospel, the good news. We can see it in announcements related to very important events in the life of the emperor. Like, for example, this inscription, the calendar inscription of Priene, Dated September 23rd, 9 BC, which I think we all know is the birthday of Augustus Caesar. But look at what it says, this important archaeological discovery. It says, this is a day which we may justly count as equivalent to the beginning of everything. Inasmuch as it has restored the shape of everything that was failing and turning into misfortune and has given a new look to the universe at a time when it would gladly have welcomed destruction if Caesar had not been born sending in him, as it were, a savior for us and those who would come after us. The birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning for the world of the gospel, the glad tidings that have come to men through him. Kind of a controversial term for them to apply this to Jesus. They're like, you think the birth of Caesar is the birth of a God? You think that's good news for the world? We got the real good news. And this is the beginning of the best news that the world has ever heard. The gospel. For Jews, it would have also brought up the good news of the prophet Isaiah. You know, the book of Isaiah has a lot of bad news. It's written 700 years before Jesus. And the prophet Isaiah is saying, you guys are going to get taken into captivity. You've got some bad years ahead. But Isaiah said, there's good news also. And it, it begins a, a, a portion of the book where he's comforting the people. And what he's saying is, God is going to visit you. He's going to send his servant to take care of sin. And he's going to reign as a king. The Messiah is coming. And he announces this in terms of good news. Isaiah 52, 7. Remember the passage we studied two weeks ago that James Rochford taught? The suffering servant, that was Isaiah, end of 52 and 53. How is that introduced? How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring gospel, good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Yes, the kingdom of God, Jesus would then begin to announce, has come near. He has Isaiah in mind as he's using this term. And so, you know, the Greeks are saying, the birth of the God King, gospel. And the Jews are saying, the promises of Isaiah, the good tidings, the servant, the king, the, the new age, the millennial kingdom, 
And Mark says, yes, that's exactly right. He says the gospel. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, that's the Greek version of his name, Yeshua. That's what they called him probably, which means Yahweh saves. Yahweh was the name of God in the Old Testament. Still his name now. Yahweh saves. He's also the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the Anointed One, the Promised One. And oh yeah, he's the Son of God. He's divine. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the good news. And the good news of the gospel, this is not a new philosophy or a list of rules you've got to follow or, or a lump sum of money you inherited from your great aunt. No, it's a relationship. It's a relationship with a personal being, Jesus Christ. That is the key to the meaning of life. This is the good news you've been waiting for. This is where the transcendent God the God above all, the God who created the heavens and the earth, enters into human history. This is the beginning of that phase in God's plan. And this is your chance for a new beginning. Some of us are feeling like, I need a new beginning. My life's not heading in the right direction. And what the gospel offers here, as Mark tells it, this is the beginning of the gospel. And if you come to Christ... You are a new cre creation. The old has gone. The new has come. It's a fresh start. It's a new birth. This is your chance for a new beginning. The gospel. That's the good news. And even though this is totally new, this is rooted in the prophecies and the theological concepts of the Old Testament. He says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. All right, he actually quotes two prophets. They usually just named the major ones. The first quote here is actually from Malachi. Remember that cliffhanger ending to the Old Testament I was talking about? Mark says, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. It's interesting when you read Malachi, God promises to send a messenger he says, I'll send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Isn't that interesting? Do you notice the pronoun change? In, Ma in, in Mark, you and your way, he's speaking to Jesus. I'll send my messenger ahead of you, Jesus, and he will prepare your way. But in Malachi, God says, I'm going to send my messenger, and he'll, he'll clear the way before me. So which one is it here? Is it referring to the way of Jesus or the way of Yahweh? And the answer is yes, it's both. This is one of many passages, many passages in our New Testament that quotes an Old Testament passage referring to Yahweh, God, and then applies it to Jesus. There's dozens like this. Same thing in verse 3. This is Isaiah 40, verse 3. Isaiah, Isaiah says sending a voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Once again, do you notice? Mark calls it, he says, prepare the way for the Lord. That's, that's his term for Jesus. He is Lord. And make straight paths for him. It's talking about Jesus. But in Isaiah, clear the way for Yahweh. Make a highway for our God. Again, he's taking a passage about Yahweh 
and he's applying it to Jesus. And that's why you need to just not listen to when a, a scholar comes along with a new view of Jesus about everybody's misunderstood Jesus and now he understands Jesus. Scholars like Bart Ehrman, for example, when they go on the Stephen Colbert show and they make statements like this, Ehrman says, you know, what eventually happens in the first century is that Jesus, who's portrayed as a human Messiah in the earliest parts of Christianity, eventually becomes to be seen as himself divine. From Jesus to Christ. History Channel, tonight at 8. Ehrman says, so the, the deity of Christ, that's not found in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, for example, that Jesus is a divine being. Mark didn't think Jesus was God, neither did Matthew or Luke. It's only John. To which Colbert, of course, says, well, that's why John's last. The first three were rough drafts, and then you get to John, and he gets it right. Well, I disagree with both of these statements. I think Colbert is just being funny. Um, the reason we have four Gospels is not because the first three were rough drafts. I've heard the four Gospels compared to a string quartet directed by the Holy Spirit, all together playing a perfect and complete symphony telling the life of Jesus. Or it's like a film where the Holy Spirit is the producer and he's got a camera here and a camera here and a camera here and a camera here. And those are the four Gospels. And each camera is capturing different aspects of the life and the teaching of Christ. They all fit together in a complementary way. But I really agree, disagree with Bart Ehrman when he says that the deity of Christ, the divinity of Christ is not found in Mark. Why? If that's the case... Why does Mark equate Jesus with Yahweh twice in the first three verses after calling him the Son of God in verse 1? Now, is it that Ehrman just doesn't know that? Or is it that he's making a lot of money selling books about how we've all misunderstood Jesus and he is the one with the right Jesus? Make sure you check your source when you're learning about Jesus. The historical background for this practice of making straight the way of the Lord. Well, when Caesar was coming to town, you had to get ready for his visit. It's like when the Olympics is coming to a city and they do all this work for years trying to get ready for the Olympics. And when Caesar came to town, you don't want him hitting a pothole every three or four feet. You want a nice smooth road right into the city. And what was being prepared, it wasn't just that the street needed prepared, but the people needed to get ready. When you see the Caesar's road crew show up, you better get ready. And John says, John the Baptist, who we're going to learn about in the next verse, when people say, who are you? He says, yeah, I'm on uh, Messiah's road crew. I'm a voice. That's it. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Who was John the Baptist? Well, in Luke 1, we find out that John was born via miraculous birth, like a few others in Scripture. John's parents were Zachariah and Elizabeth. And in their old age, they had not been able to have kids. An angel showed up and told Zachariah, your wife's going to be pregnant. And I want you to name him John, and i got big plans for him. So there were high expectations for John when he was born. It was a miracle. John was Jesus' cousin. He was only six months older than Jesus. In fact, when Mary gets pregnant, she goes to her relative Elizabeth's house. And they, they hang out together for three months, pregnant together. 
Maybe till John was born, I don't know. But, so these guys, I mean, they would have grown up together. They would have perhaps gone to the festivals together at the temple, one, two, three times a year. These guys knew each other, and yet John, we learn next week, he didn't know Jesus was the Messiah at first. He knew he was to announce the Messiah. He was pretty shocked when it turned out to be his cousin. God revealed that to him at Jesus' baptism. But John, in his late 20s, he began preaching and baptizing in the desert, and he became wildly popular. In fact, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. We're talking, I mean, John's speaking a little bit of hyperbole here. We're talking all the people, the whole countryside, everybody. This guy was hot. This guy was a celebrity. Everybody. And this is a grueling journey. This is not just like stopping by the pool before lunch to hit the Jordan River. No, this was a grueling journey. 20 to 50 miles, depending on where he was at on the Jordan River. It was a very dangerous road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. You were heading into the desert. You better bring water. You better be careful. And yet people said, we got to go. We got to go and see John the Baptist. He was so popular that decades after John's death, Josephus writes about him. Josephus, the Roman Jewish historian. John comes up in Josephus' work. Josephus writes, now, some of the Jews thought the destruction of Herod's army came from God. Okay, the context here is King Herod, Antipas, lost this battle. And the Jews thought that's divine punishment. And it was just as a punishment of what Herod did against John, who was called the Baptist. That's right. John the Baptist. For Herod slew him. John was a good man. John commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, righteousness toward one another, and piety towards God, and to come to baptism. Now, many others came in crowds about him, for they were greatly pleased hearing John's words. He's talking about the crowds that would go see John. And Herod became afraid. Afraid of what? Lest the great influence John had might raise a rebellion. For they seemed ready to do anything John should advise. So Herod thought it best by putting him to death to prevent any mischief John might cause. John was so popular and so influential, Herod saw him as a threat. And we'll get to the death of John the Baptist later, but for now we just need to note that Josephus, who's not a Christian, he's a Roman Jewish historian writing from Rome decades later. He says John lived when, he, when Mark says he did, where Mark says he did. He was doing the things Mark said he was doing, that he was a, a threat to Herod, and he was executed by Herod, and he speaks of the immense popularity of John. And I love it when secular history just happens to line up with biblical history, because you know people come along and be like, this was all psychedelic mushroom hallucinations. And then you read them Josephus, and they're like, uh, yeah, maybe not that part. He says the whole countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. What was the secret to John's popularity? He's a weird guy. Verse 6, it says his clothing was made of camel's hair. 
a leather belt around his waist? He ate locusts and wild honey. So here we got locusts made of camel hair, woven together, tough camel hair, leather belt. Kind of reminds you of the prophet Elijah, actually. A rugged, leather belt-wearing desert man confronting the king. You know, these locusts, um, sounds gross to us, but it's actually a, a source of nutrition in many parts of the world still today. Although I think you want to dip them in the honey before you eat them and it makes them go down better. But John's out there. He's wearing kind of weird clothing. He's eating locusts. He's, uh, apart from the establishment, people got to travel many miles to go out and see him. And what? You know, his message seems like even more of a deterrent than his clothing. What was he saying? First, he says, you need to confess your sins. That's what people were doing there. Confessing their sins. This was the big draw. You know, admitting you're wrong has never been a popular concept. Do you like doing it? I'm not a big fan. This is not in human nature to admit we're wrong. In fact, some of us listening here tonight, maybe we pride ourselves on never admitting we're wrong. It's not a popular concept. And yet we have people hiking for days to go out to the wilderness and stand in front of thousands and confess their sins and be baptized in the Jordan River. What was the draw of this guy? He was preaching something. Something that spoke deep to the heart of human need. And you know, Christians sometimes are given a hard time for talking about sin, the S word. Sin means to miss the mark. It means we've fallen short of the glory of God. And so you read people like Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion. This is a quote from John Lennox's book, Gunning for God, an awesome book. Richard Dawkins says this about Christians and sin. He says, Christian focus is overwhelmingly on sin, 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 sin. What a nasty little preoccupation to have dominating your life. And John Lennox responds so well. He says, sin, though it can certainly be very nasty, is not a little preoccupation. It's a major preoccupation that dominates the world. It is the root cause of tyrannies, wars, genocide, murder, exploitation, financial crises, injustice. Uh, It's of international, societal, and family breakdown, incalculable unhappiness due to lying, cheating, slander, bullying, stealing, domestic violence, and every form of crime. What is overwhelming, to use Dawkins' word, is the horrendous destructiveness of sin. And any philosophy such as theirs that trivializes or ignores sin is sheer fantasy. He concludes with this. I suspect the real reason for the superficiality of much atheist reaction is not that they do not see sin as a problem. It is because they have no solution. And John was bringing the bad news of the problem And he was also giving a solution. He said, you need the forgiveness of sins. You need to admit your sins and you need to receive the forgiveness. He also said, number two, you need to repent. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What does that mean? It's a word that means to change your mind, especially regarding your attitude toward God. This means you're going on the highway one direction, you get on the exit ramp, and then you get back on the opposite entrance ramp and you go back the other direction. He says, that's what you need to his 
religious Jewish audience. And third, it says baptism, baptized. You need to be baptized with water, John said. What was this about? Craig Keener, New Testament scholar, says, you know, Jews had washings, but the only once-for-all ceremonial washing was the immersion that non-Jews had to go through when they converted to Judaism. To tell Jewish people they had to be baptized or repent the same way non-Jews did would have been offensive. Most Jewish people thought if they were born into a Jewish family and did not reject God's law, they would be saved. John told them instead they had to come to God the same way that non-Jews did. Yeah, John says, you don't get in because of your DNA. No, it's not that you're on the right track and you just need to not depart from it. He says, you need a 180. You need a, a change of mind. You need to admit you're wrong. You've fallen way short of God's law. You are not acceptable to God the way you are, John said. That's what God says to us, too. You're not acceptable to God the way you are, apart from Christ. But because of the good news, you can become acceptable to God. You can become perfect in his sight. You need to be baptized with water. But here's the thing. He's preaching the need for forgiveness and sin. How can water cleanse your soul? It maybe could remove dirt from the body, but cleanse the soul? And in that sense, John's ministry had the same cliffhanger element as the rest of the Old Testament. There was a fourth element in that everything that he was doing pointed forward to Christ. He said, After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. The Talmud taught rabbis could have their disciples do any menial task except one. And that would be attending to the sandals. Slaves had to do that. But what John is saying is, I'm not, it's not just that I'm not good enough to be a disciple of the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to be his slave. They haven't thought of a task that would be menial enough for me to do for him. I'm way below slave level when it comes to my relationship with the one coming after me. And here in John, we see the key to humility. It's not putting yourself down or pretending to think less of yourself than you do. The key to humility is getting a clear picture of Jesus. He was not puffed up by the crowds because he didn't let them define who he was. John looked to Jesus and he, def he defined himself in relation to Jesus. And that's what we need to do. You want humility? You need to get your eyes on Jesus. That's what's going to be able to allow you to admit you're wrong and to be the kind of servant that Jesus is calling you to be. And finally, John says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The water I'm using, it's only a picture of the cleansing that he's going to do. And, you know, we live in a time when we are washing ourselves more than ever. You know, we got antibacterial spray, antibacterial hand sanitizer, antibacterial soap. We're washing our hands. I'm washing my, my hands more than I've ever washed them in my life. I'm theoretically singing happy birthday twice when I do it in my heart. We live in a time when we're washing, 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 trying to get the germs off. But what Scripture says is you need a deeper washing. There's a washing that needs to take place down in your soul. And water cannot reach where you need cleansed. 
And we feel it. We feel. We feel the deep shame. We know there's things we've done. We know there's a brokenness there. What do we do about it? We look in vain to solutions of the world. And John says, there's one coming with a new kind of cleansing. The cleansing of the Holy Spirit. And he can wash your soul. Christ provides a new cleansing for you. And you can have that cleansing today. You can have that tonight. As it says in Titus, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. That is the good news. You know, Jesus said about John, of all who've ever lived, none's greater than John. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. How could he say that? It's because John marked the end of an era. John was the culmination of the Old Testament. He was the transition. He was the marker of a new beginning. But every person under the new covenant has unprecedented access to God. Everyone does. They've got an access that John the Baptist and the prophet Elijah only dreamed of because we could be cleansed on the inside and God's spirit can come and dwell within us. This is the good news. And this is what John came to announce, the dawning of that new day. And with that, I'd like to say thanks for joining us here tonight for our first study in the book of Mark. And I'd also like to personally invite you to come back next week where we're going to read the next five verses about the baptism of Christ and the temptation of Christ. And I got to tell you, the temptation of Christ, I can't imagine a time when it's ever been more relevant than for our lives right now. You have Jesus, he's out, he's isolated from everyone, he's practicing extreme social distancing. He's been doing it for 40 days. He's getting pounded with the worst temptation he's ever felt in his life. And he has no access at all to toilet paper. So come on back next week. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.